Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
what does that translate into average, you know, with COVID 220 or something like that? I think it's reasonable to expect in the future year now that 22 price the year we're in is like $5. I think a reasonable expectation over the next five years is, is $4. I would have said before the invasion, 350. But that incremental demand from Europe, I think, will make a 50 cent difference in expectation for U.S. natural gas pricing. It's not to say it can't trade as low as three or as high as five, where it is, but as a mean, four dollars seems, you know, like a reasonably reasonably good bet, at least a 50-50 probability. In terms of interest rate, every economist with expertise in this area predicts that short rates will go up, which they have done as expectation of Fed funds increases are built into the two-year market. You you have heard and will see this uh, thing about reversion where the 10-year bond gets below the two-year bond. That tends to predict recession. I think what, what the thinking is that you're going to have a tighter Federal Reserve policy that will slow down economic activity. Another way to look at it is that there should be some return for the bondholder, and return would be future inflation rate plus, say, a percent or a percent and a half. That would argue for something in the 5% range. Now, inflation's running 7 or 8% now, but I think that a lower inflation rate by the time we get to year-end 22 is a reasonable expectation because the earlier discussion of oil prices, I think oil prices will be somewhat lower. The inflation goes up because of housing costs. Housing costs are computed for the CPI based on housing rental rates. I, I think all housing is going to be somewhat less because of higher interest rates. So foods, you know, the big, big problem with trying to replace all the wheat that's grown in the Ukraine and farm supplies generally. But, you know, I think in time, that will slow down a bit. So if we have 4% inflation in the fourth quarter of this year, I see a strong argument for having a long bond at 5%. That's not what the economists that cover this this area, this particular specialty say, but I, I don't think you can rule it out. In terms of impact on, on the U.S. stock market, I think that, that the adjustment of stock market valuation to earnings and cash flow, we may be more than halfway through getting that done. And I think now it's going to be a matter of being in sectors that are not impacted by cost inflating that are sectors that don't depend, you know, that it will do better as we reopen after COVID and the normal things you look for, which is good cash flow characteristics and, you know, proprietary positions so that, you know, like a duopoly or something where you where you have the ability to uh, raise prices. The things we focused on on these Wednesday calls have been chips, semiconductors, under the theory that as time goes on, more semiconductors are going to be needed. Think only of, if you've got a later model car, think only of the fact that all the semiconductors on digital equipment and whatnot are fitted into a 
car now, but seems to be a pretty pretty well established trend in our Mike has spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time talking about software companies focusing and especially two of the really good and prominent ones, Salesforce and Snowflake. And I think that we spent time on batteries. The battery technology is largely with Chinese companies, especially CATL and BYD. It's hard to figure out and you know, difficult to invest in Chinese companies. The average Chinese tech stock is off 50 or 60%. The Alibaba is at 10 cents and so forth. So I think what Mike and I have to do as investors is continue to hone in on, on the semiconductors and software. In other words, having, I mean, clearly the move towards investing or, or companies and individuals using other people's servers or cloud computing, as it's called, led by Amazon, second is Microsoft, Oracle, and Google trying to maintain a third or fourth position in it. The question is, what kind of software do you need as an individual or a, or a business to make the most use out of all that data that could be stored pretty inexpensively in the cloud? And, and then chips, you know, Maybe Taiwan Semiconductor is less impacted by events than CATL and BYD would be if batteries, but still uh, a bit of a concern. Intel's way behind, wants to be like Taiwan Semiconductor, but, but you know, has a, a lot of catching up to do on getting, you know, latest semiconductor technology. Mike has spent time looking at the people who make the equipment for the semiconductors, which, you know, may be interesting. And I think with this few minutes, I, I think I'm still only 14 minutes. I think I've kind of tried to summarize everything we've discussed in the, in the last several Wednesdays, weeks of Wednesdays. Uh, so I'm being kind of unfair to Mike. Now, now I'm going to turn it over to him, having kind of covered the waterfront. But I, I can turn it over to Mike for any commentary or or opposing views or supplementary views or what have you. So over to you, Mike. You had a perspective and something that I've been spending a lot of time on, but it might make sense to explain a more top-down perspective. And and that's where do you put your money in an inflationary environment? You can go back and I'll include a chart in this week's email that shows different sectors that tend to outperform in, in inflationary environments. What I thought was interesting, because we've talked about the sector before, is that utilities were the top one there. And Hunt's pointed out some of the big risks with utilities as far as they go, but there's also partly to do with the fact that they tend to be monopolies. They also have the ability to pass uh, prices through as well. So that was interesting that that one was first. The next, I believe number two on that list was technology, which tends to be where I spend a lot of my time. So, you know, reiterating what, what Hunt said, batteries we found interesting, but remember that market, especially in automotive, is very new. So where the profits actually accrue long-term for batteries is still unknown for that market. The battery manufacturers, the, do they end up being more like automotive suppliers, which are generally low-margin businesses, or 
do they end up capturing the value for some reasons or another? That, that's still a hanging question. And there's a lot going on in batteries when it comes to developing uh, proprietary chemistries and then having the manufacturers develop those chemistries. And you see Tesla doing a lot of that, but also some of the, the, the newer EV companies are pursuing a similar strategy. So I think, like Hunt said, there's a lot of question marks there. And then if you were to invest in the battery companies today, at least the, the large actual manufacturers of battery technology, CATL and BYD, they're all in China. So you'd have to get over that hump. Semiconductor from the perspective of, of inflation tends to be pretty good, but from the perspective of semiconductor cycles, that's the other key that you need to pay attention to, um, especially the commodity sides of semiconductors. So think of memory. The U.S. company that, that we kind of use the bellwether for that is Micron. Um, memory tends to be a commodity. So if they can make it cheaper in China, everybody will buy it from China. You can compare this back to the 80s when Japan started producing higher quality memory than we were producing here in the U.S. And there was a point where Intel was in a lot of trouble and was ultimately saved by the fact that they produced the 386 processor, mainly because their memory was not competitive with the memory coming out of Japan. I like the capital equipment side, mainly because we're still seeing signs that fabs are continuing to build out and kind of plays with that decoupling thing. Cloud computing, whether it's Amazon Web Services, and I'll lump in B2B software as well. I think those have a pretty good position when it comes to inflation. So if you're trying to be more productive on a per person basis in any business, you can invest in B2B software to drive some of those efficiencies. So in general, the areas that I like are now somewhat cheaper because of the global conflict, but maybe the future is a little less certain than we felt it was a few months ago. Mr. Market, as was described by Warren Buffett, is manic. And some days he's very happy and some days he's very sad. You just want to try and make sure you're buying on the days when he's very sad and selling on the days when he's very happy. I think would be my, my only two bits of advice when it comes to that. You're thinking about investing and setting a goal for yourself to double your money every five years, which is a 15% compound rate of return. Uh, your chance of doing that is greatly improved by not owning more than about a dozen positions. Average, that would be, you know, 8% 8% positions, that's an average. So your position size is going to range from 6% to maybe as high as 14 or 15%. First thing you got to do is pay attention to the things you own and see whether something has changed. One way to think about investing is if something increases and it's 15% of my portfolio, should I lighten up? Now, almost every bit of advice you're going to get, probably also from Mike, we'll let Mike speak to this in a second, or have Mike speak to this in a second, is, you know, be more diversified. If something gets to be, because it's going up a lot to 15% of your portfolio, think about lightening up. I'm of the 
contrary view there. I think that partly because of tax laws. Now, if you have this in a IRA or a tax exempt account where you can sell and not pay tax, that gives you a little more flexibility. But if you don't and you have to pay tax, let's say the, the security is appreciated three times. So, you know, you have a fair amount of tax to pay. Let's say, let's say that things were 30, bought it for 10, pay tax. You've got to take whatever you have left, 22 or something, and find something else to invest in, and you've lost the $8 of taxes. That, to me, seems really putting yourself in a, in a disadvantageous spot better to continue to watch that company carefully and continue to own it. Now, if it gets to be 20%, Obviously, 20% is more than your average. If your average is 8%, 20% is more than 15%. But if the company is still performing, now, what do we mean by performance? Well, both Mike and I are very committed to the idea of cash flow after capital spending. In other words, if you have so much cash flow, let's say a company has $100 million of cash flow coming in and it has $60 million of capital spending, $40 million is your free cash flow. The free cash flow is what you could dividend out or use to buy in stock. If the free cash flow is still increasing, and you can tell by just a quick inspection of the income statement, the cash flow statement, also you can tell if they're paying down their debt rather than increasing their debt, that's a good sign. And if the dividend is increasing every year, that's a very good sign. And if they seem to have a strong position where they're not going to have their lose business to competitors, not have to reduce prices to compete, as, as Mike was saying, in inflation, those are the kinds of businesses you want to own. And it becomes 20% of your investment portfolio. I'm going to argue. It just let it run. Um, just be sure that every time they come out with a press release or a quarterly report or whatnot, you read it, you think about it, and you act accordingly. And if somehow you get uncomfortable with something, then's the time. That's the time to uh, lighten up. But with that, that, that's a pretty aggressive stance of, of, of you know letting your profits run. But with that, I'm going to turn it back to Mike so he can talk some sense into me and the rest of us. Over to you, Mike. I don't have that different of a perspective. I would like to be able to hold things forever. I, but I've also been in that situation where one position dwarfs the rest of a portfolio. And then you say, well, what do you do? And I, I think, like you said, it just depends on the, the nature of the account. and each person's individual situation, right? The main reason why it works is that once they do the diligence and find that they got a good one, assuming they stay on top of it and things don't change, the only thing you can do is screw it up <laughs> by selling. And I think that it is, it's easier said than done. And the advent of the internet makes it super easy to log in, to trade a stock, 
really quickly. That all seems nice and fancy, but the reality is most of us uh, would be served better by not being allowed to sell <laughs> and just holding on over the longer term. So, uh, yeah, I, we take sell decisions very, very seriously. We don't always get them all right, but I, I think our, our preference would be to hold for a longer period of time. There's no question that Snowflake and Salesforce are really good companies. My reticence, and I hope I haven't slowed Mike down or slowed any of the rest of you down, is I really would like to see them have free cash flow after all expense, including sales and, and R&D. And I just kind of know in my bones that I'm being too strict about that. On the other hand, Mike, who looks at these things and, and, and companies like this, tends to view them as uh, market value of the stock times revenue. And of course, that to me is because they're growing quickly. But, but the problem with growing quickly, but, but you're, you can't create a margin as compared to your cost of servicing the client, the sales expense, or the R&D can be also the cost of servicing a client. In other words, specialized software fixes, whatnot. I would just be much more comfortable with those two companies, you know, getting clear so that your revenue is going up faster than those expense items. Now, I do spend time on these things on the weekend, nowhere near the amount of time that Mike has spent, does spend and continues to spend. Mike believes that Salesforce has kind of gotten to where it needs to be. And he also believes that that Snowflake is in the late, latest quarter has gotten there. But with that, we've got about two or three minutes left and that might give us an update on those two companies. To answer your question, I look at it both ways. I do a relative valuation to see relative to the B2B software companies, is this cheap or expensive given the amount of growth, given the gross margins, uh, et cetera. And then I will also do a regular cash flow evaluation to say, what is their cash flow doing over time? Is it consistently growing over time? And in the case of Salesforce, it's one where you don't see the, the cyclicality that we see in semiconductor, for example. So it's much easier to look at that from a financial analysis perspective. So that we like. The other side of the coin is Snowflake, which doesn't have the long operating history. But what they do have is an incredible amount of growth and a very well-respected product in the development communities. So I think Snowflake is a little harder to get comfortable with, but seeing that they do have positive free cash flow, though it is scant, and uh, understanding that as long as they continue to grow in their current form, it's very likely that the company will have a long run of growth. Great. More next week. In the meantime, everyone stay stay healthy and, and try to ah, try to boil out, as Mike was saying, short-term swings and pay attention to the long-term. And I think the, uh, the idea that if you are fortunate enough to have something that is really working and increasing a lot as compared to the rest of the securities you hold in your portfolio, I think 
especially in this environment, it makes sense to let it run and not sell and try to redeploy. We'll make that a focus over the next couple of Wednesdays when we get into uh, specific companies. In the meanwhile, everyone take care. Come on. for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.